Hello and welcome to Medical Minefield, where we talk about the ethical dilemmas at the heart of the health stories that matter the most. I'm Barney Kalman and I'm the health editor at The Mail on Sunday. And today with me is health writer extraordinaire Eve Simmons. Wow, what a flattering introduction. Hello. Bake Off star Prue Leith this week suggested that we should ban cake in school. Prue is, apart from being on telly, is also a government advisor on healthy eating. So what she says carries some weight. It's quite a bold statement to start banning food from school. She's actually gone further than this in a blog and said no packed lunches either because parents might put sweets and treats in them. And her idea is that people will snack all day and then not eat a healthy lunch. The reason that she's doing this is because we have a problem with many, many children being overweight or obese. I know that this is a subject that you are quite interested in, Eve. I am, yes. I've long written about the complexities behind Britain's so-called obesity crisis and the many reasons why we have so many children who are overweight. But you don't believe in banning foods, do you? No, I do not. I think that that's completely the wrong way to go about things. I think it's too extreme and I think there will be unintended consequences. But it makes sense to ban junk food in school, surely? Does it? I mean, we know from a lot of evidence now that these punitive measures rarely work to reduce the toll of childhood obesity. Often they need to be in conjunction with other more detailed measures such as nutritional education and looking actually outside of school and approaching families with other strategies. Well, there's clearly a need for action because I was reading a a recent government report that showed that one in three children leave primary school either overweight or obese now. And so, you know, we know that they're going to grow up with weight problems as well. It needs to be tackled. And obviously, children aren't responsible for what they eat themselves. You know, it's the adults that care for them. And school's a big part of that. I think that, first of all, we need to hear from Prue herself. Prue, thanks so much for finding some time to talk to us. Last week, you called for a crackdown on snacks in schools. Uh, uh, you said you'd ban cakes, sweets, and you said in the past you'd even ban packed lunches. Why is that? Well, the fundamental thing is if you want children to eat school dinners or eat a healthy lunch, they won't do that if they are full of chocolate and biscuits and stuff they brought into school. And the trouble with packed lunches is that although there are some parents, obviously, who pack a very healthy lunch, most mums, and I, I would put myself in this category, it's very difficult to pack a school lunch without slipping in some treat or other. Every mum wants their child to love their lunchbox. And so the temptation to put a finger of fudge in there is um, enormous. But, I mean, what's so bad about having a treat in your packed lunch? Well, if that was the only treat you had all day, of course it would be fine, and as if it was a fairly small one. But what's happened to modern children, I think, and I know I sound very old-fashioned and boring about this, is that treats have become not a treat. They're an essential. They happen every two hours or every hour. Children get snacks all morning, and then they don't want their lunch. And then the minute they come out of school, mum feeds them something in the car going home or may, or they buy something on the way home. From I mean, the sort of culture of eating snacks all the time, I think, is far more contributory to obesity than not going for a run. Or I think going for a run is good, by the way. But I just think the real problem is 
the way we eat. And I think that the answer, if you, if you want me to bang on this even more boringly, is the answer, if I was, um, you know, dictator and I wanted to get obesity down, the first thing I would do is to make sure that school dinners were absolutely delicious, very healthy, and the children sat down with their teachers and their colleague and ate a proper lunch. But you can't ask schools to do that unless you make it easy for them. Give them the training for the dinner ladies, make sure the environment for where they sit down is really nice and all the rest of it. And then you can say to parents, look, you can't send them in with packed lunches. You have to have school lunch. And I know of some schools who've done this and really successfully. And the parents, although they object at first, they say, you know, it's my right to feed my children what they like. If it's explained to them that what they were trying to do at school is train children to love healthy food and to eat well and to do without snacks all the time, it will benefit their health and then parents get to like it. Yeah. And what would you say about, say, celebrating birthdays or, or the cake sales or bun and biscuit day? Are they, would they be off limits too? No, I wouldn't make them off limits because I think, you know, if, if it's a once a term thing, then it is a treat and, it is, and it's exciting. And I love children to be able to bake and to cook. And, I, and also, by the way, in my new dictatorial manner, I would make sure that every child learned to cook at school. Mm. Um, and that would include some baking. You know, of course I love cake. Everybody knows I love cake. I just don't think we should eat cake every day of our lives. Which is completely fair enough. But we've just had a situation where footballer Marcus Rashford had to launch a campaign to make sure kids who relied on free school meals didn't effectively starve during lockdown. I mean, isn't the big problem that, that many kids out there don't have enough food? How would they fit into your plan? Some children don't have enough food. I think what's much more likely is that they're having the wrong food. So you see that a ban on something wouldn't work in isolation. You're saying it has to be part of a big, overall, holistic approach to combating poor eating, I suppose. Exactly. And I mean, I'm very glad that the government is finally taking notice of the importance of food. I mean, we've got the, you know, the national food strategy that Henry Zimbleby is doing. We had the hospital food review that I helped them with. They have realised that food is really important to health. But what I don't think they've realised enough is that education at school for children is vital. It's no good saying we'll leave it to the parents because we've missed a couple of generations. Most parents don't know how to cook. You must be aware that this has been a conversation that's been going on for more than a decade. You were involved in the in the drive after Jamie Oliver uh, did his expose on poor school meals and when you headed up the school's food trust. You know, this is something that's gone on for a while. Uh, would you say that this approach has ever been successful i mean why are we still talking about it why hasn't it why hasn't it had an impact (laughs) perhaps because nobody's listened to me for 40 years (laughs) no that's not true um i mean it depends and what tends to happen in government is that ministers pick up a cause and they get very enthusiastic about it and they declare that they'll do something really radical which is what happened with the school food trust and then the government changes and priorities change and ministers move and the money disappears. It's the sustained effort that is not there. I mean, the Schools Food Trust project, it was not popular in some areas. You know, you had parents that were so worried about their kids going without food that they were buying them meals from the local chippy and bringing them in. 
Well, that's not entirely true. Of course, there were, that happened occasionally, but those would make the headlines in the newspapers. And it's true that when we first started the School Food Trust, there was a sort of feeling that, you know, there were headlines in the papers, hands off our chips, and, you know, I was called the food czar, and it was all quite unpleasant. But by the end, it was amazing how many teachers had realized that children who were eating more healthy food were actually performing better in schools, that they were generally happier and healthier. And most importantly, it affected their school life, you know, their, mm. their results. And the parents were in the end really grateful. But the trouble is, it just didn't continue for long enough and it wasn't broad enough. Pro, you've devoted decades of your life to doing this. What is it that motivates you? Why are you so passionate about children and food? I have no idea. I just think it's really important. And it's true. I, you know, I wish I'd only had to devote three years of my life to it or something and, and we'd had enough change. But the truth is, I think I'll go to the grave bleating about this. But there are some amazingly good things. You know, I, I wish everybody could see, for example, what Chefs in Schools do, which is a charity, puts chefs into schools who don't just cook for the children, but they sit down with the children and they talk to them about what they're eating and they encourage them to eat all this healthy food. And it's a joy to go to one of those schools because the kids absolutely love it and they eat everything. Mm. And very often I find that in schools that do it right, the dinner ladies will tell me that the parents think the children won't eat this and they won't eat that and they're really fussy eaters and they can't stand that. And they say, Actually, it's not true. Little Tommy will eat this and he likes it. You know, we have a wonderful opportunity to train children to like good food while they're at school. It's about the only time that you have people corralled unless they're in prison or in hospital where we have people actually in a situation where you could teach them to like something new. And I think that I really believe that teaching children to love food and love good food is as important as maths or anything else. I mean, they will live longer, they'll be happier and they'll be healthier. What could be more obvious? Prue, I hope you don't have to go to the grave before you see some positive change in terms of childhood obesity and, and children being given good nutrition. Thank you so much for finding some time to talk to us. Bye-bye. That was Prue Leith, and I think a lot of what she says makes sense. They know that if you give children health messages, they often take them home to the family it's a good way of for instance we know with, with vaccines that's uh, something that, that they did a kind of stealth method of of getting parents to engage more in vaccine programs they promoted them to children and then the children would go home and say have i been vaccinated and anyone who hadn't instantly had to get taken to their gp on their own demand that's very clever but you aren't the biggest fan of prudy's approach look i think everything that she said on as, as they say on paper looks completely like it would work wonders but what worries me is I do feel that all of these initiatives like the Chefs in School initiative whilst on the face of it they are obviously extremely positive it's the sort of nice 
end of this issue that is incredibly thorny and messy and what it really requires is going into children's homes and really understanding the complexities of their lives and their parents' lives and you know she was talking for ages about cookery and how important cookery is and I hear celebrity chefs say this quite a lot and of course it's important but time is also important and you might have the skills to cook but if you're working three or four jobs and you've got five maybe six children or however many or even three children to be honest and you're trying to juggle everything by yourself if you're a single parent or even if there's two parents having the skills to cook is one thing but if you are completely stretched for time and also money then that's another complicated problem for you so I just think that her theories are incredibly simplistic and don't represent the truth for a lot of families in this country. Next, we're going to speak to someone who has a very different view from Prue, a dietitian who doesn't even believe in using the word obesity at all. Yes, Lucy Aframore is a radical dietitian who practices a non-diet approach to health. Lucy, hello. Hello, Eve. So, Lucy, is it a good idea, in your opinion, to ban cake in schools? It's a terrible idea, Eve, on a number of accounts. What we know is that if we ban food, it's called demonising them. So it gives the message to children that cake is bad and that people who eat cake are bad. And that leads to a lot of shame and just a lot of confusion. It also means that it sets up this mindset of scarcity. And when I say mindset, particularly with young children, it's not happening on a cognitive basis. It happens on this deep, what we call a somatic level. And... And these are the people that I work with as a dietitian now who've been told when they're four and five, put on diet and told not to eat cake. So it really interrupts people's relationship with food. And that has a knock-on effect on how people think about themselves and how they relate to self-care generally. If we take cake out of school, there will be other impacts that... It's frightening, really, that political leaders are using logic like this where we can remove cake and there's no consequence beyond eradicating fat children. So you're saying that food bans, any food bans, could actually do more harm than good. And in fact, you could lead to children developing a disordered relationship with food, which might mean that they overeat despite their bodies telling them they're not hungry. I think it's frankly dangerous. And not least, because the food ban, it comes from this idea that there is something morally wrong with being fat. And that leads to fat shame in people of all shapes and sizes and fat stigma. And shame and stigma, first of all, there's human rights implications. And of course, they've got health implications as well. So it's really, really misguided. And and to what extent is um, social deprivation important in understanding the high levels of obesity that we have in children in this country? I think there's a real problem in the, the language that public health gives us to use about this. And you might notice that I don't use what fat activists and critical thinkers will call the O word, like overweight and obesity, because it assumes that fat bodies are inherently pathological and something should be done about fatness. So what I would want to do is to separate out deprivation as a a health risk in itself. And what we need to look at is how does deprivation impact people's health? And it might also impact people's weight, but not conflate deprivation to fatness or poorer health. We need to untangle these things because there's plenty of 
people of all different shapes and sizes who live with social disadvantage whose health suffers as a result of it. And if we keep on looking at fatness as the problem, we carry on doing more harm than good and we carry on missing the opportunities for real change that we could be doing. Hmm. Brilliant. Well, so interesting to speak with you, Lucy. Thank you so much. Thank you, Eve. Thank you. Well, I have to say that Lucy didn't say a single thing that I expected to hear from a dietitian when talking about weight. That being overweight is a symptom of a wider problem or whole range of wider problems, it sounds, more complicated than something that a diet or food ban could ever tackle. Absolutely. It's a very holistic approach, isn't it? One that I haven't heard much before. Next, I'd like to hear from somebody who is at the sharp end of this problem. Peter Sedman, a weight loss surgeon who's operated on children as young as 13. Peter, thanks for finding some time to talk to us. We've been talking today about whether banning cake in school will help combat childhood obesity. Where do you stand? I think tackling obesity in children is crucial part of our future, frankly. Obesity tends to start in childhood. Uh, It's a major problem and most of our food choices and education takes place at school. So I think whatever we can do to improve our choices at school has got to be a good thing. I, I have no doubt about that at all. Now, you have told me about treating children as young as 13 with uh, weight loss surgery. I mean, tell me a bit about these kids. You know, why are these kids so overweight? Well, it's a combination of factors. There are lots of things that lead on to it. But essentially, there are poor food choices and eating disorders in the main that can't be tackled any other way. And we've seen children in their pre-teens with BMIs of more than 50 and they've been like that since a very early age. It's usually bad food choices, um, bad education and getting into a situation where they just cannot then lose the weight. I mean, at that age particularly, the parents must play a huge role too. Well, it's difficult to escape that conclusion, but there are multi-factors. Some of it will be genetic and it's again the age-old debate between nature and nurture. But when, when we see patients that extreme, it's almost invariable that parents themselves are overweight themselves. And so it will be a combination of factors, yeah. I know that you don't think diets are the answer when it comes to severe overweight, but you also think prevention maybe is, is better than the cure, that we should avoid kids from getting into these states in the first place. I think that's absolutely inescapable. I'm not against diets at all. Uh, My problem is using diets to treat those patients who are already morbidly obese because the the evidence suggests that it just doesn't work. As much as we would like it to, it just doesn't work. I have no doubt that healthy eating in particular, uh, and, and healthy eating I don't think involves crash diets on a regular basis, but general healthy eating to prevent us from becoming obese and especially morbidly obese uh, has got to be the way forward. It's much more sensible to prevent these problems rather than treat them when they've come on. I mean, it must be quite a miserable situation to be in if you're very young and need weight loss surgery. What kind of emotional state are these patients in? Uh, generally, they have challenges, real challenges. They're bullied at school. Uh, they face social isolation in, in many cases. 
and I have to say that they often come from challenged backgrounds in the first place, and I empathise with them enormously. And I, I think there are multifactorial reasons and things that need to be tackled. Just removing the weight alone, if you don't tackle the root of the problems as well, then we've only solved a part of their problem. And what would you do to tackle the roots of the problem? Well, <laughs> obesity has become a massive problem in the last 30 or 40 years, and especially in the last 20 years. So I think we have to adopt a much wider strategy than simply berating individuals. We live in a very obesogenic environment, whether that be exercise, whether it be the food choices, the food industry. But we live in an incredibly obesogenic uh, environment, and I think that has to be tackled. And as I say, the place to start has got to be school. We know that 80% of children who are obese at school will be obese adults as well, and it just takes the problem into the next generations. So anything we can do to tackle childhood obesity effectively, then I think we have to we have to turn our attention to it. But it is it's an incredibly challenging situation. We see all sorts of problems with eating disorders in children and how to deal with all of that sensitively and appropriately. It's a big job and a very difficult job, which is why few people in the Western world have yet managed to get on top of it well enough. I put you in charge tomorrow. Do you ban the tuck shop? Yes or no? Yes. <laughs> well, there you have it. Thanks so much, Peter. My pleasure. That was weight loss surgeon Peter Sedman, who is a member of the Confederation of British Surgery. You can listen to Medical Minefield for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google or anywhere you get your podcasts. Well, we've heard the arguments for and against uh, what Prue says. I, I have to say that, it, you know, what Prue says sounds sensible, idealistic perhaps, but I can see why there's a need for it. She's not calling for an outright ban. She's calling for a whole package of, of measures that will try and improve diets in schools and there really is a need for that. Have you changed your mind, Eve? No, I actually think I'm more convinced by my argument than ever, interestingly. Really? Why? Well, just because I think what really sort of spoke to me was the evidence from the experts who very clearly said that social factors are incredibly important and that what goes on outside of school is maybe more important when it comes to tackling childhood obesity. I do think there's a lot to be said for the fact that if you ban something, it becomes more desirable. I, I can relate to that myself. I, I When I was growing up, my mum would never have let me eat sweets or, you know, I was never allowed to have a McDonald's birthday party like all my friends. Poor deprived child. I know, I had it hard. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, it made me obsess over those things. And as soon as I had my own money and I could walk into a McDonald's myself... I did so and bought everything and 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 ate a lot of it. So it was slightly counterproductive, banning me from doing something, you know, that I was going to go and do anyway. And obviously we all need to eat. It's not like smoking. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me at all, actually, because there's been studies where they've actually got a group of children and they've put a plate of cookies on the table in front of them and said to one group of children, you can eat however many you like in the space of 10 minutes. And another group of children, they've put the cookies in a jar and left them there for 10 minutes and then afterwards said, you can have as many as you like. And what happens is the children who are exposed to the cookies in the jar end up 
actually eating more at the end of the experiment. Uh, and it's because of that forbidden fruit phenomenon, really. Yeah. So it's hardly surprising. Other studies actually later have shown that adolescent girls are more likely to overeat and binge eat if they are exposed to parents who won't let them eat certain foods growing up. And... I mean, something that's clear from the discussions that we've had with the experts uh, and between ourselves, we've talked about this a lot over the years. You know, everyone seems to bring their own experiences to this. I know that, you know, perhaps what you think is coloured by your own experiences. You know, you've written about the fact that uh, restrictive eating messages on the Internet triggered an eating disorder for you? Yeah, look, I would never say that eating disorders are caused by restrictive food messages that you might read online or on social media. But I certainly think, given what I've learned from other people who have been through similar experiences to me, that these messages definitely contribute to that attitude towards food, which is so binary and, you know, thinking that you can't eat certain foods because they're bad and you can eat certain foods because they're good. And that those thought patterns stay with you for a long time. They can be very damaging. I think ultimately that's why, especially when it comes to kids that we really need to make sure that we stick to the best medical evidence on this matter i always enjoy talking to you about this subject you've really opened my eyes over the years to this i think that there's many preconceptions you can have and it's always worth listening widely unfortunately that's all we have time for today you'll find all the latest health news in this weekend's the mail on sunday and visit mailplus.co.uk to listen to all our podcasts free and in full You can also follow us on Twitter by searching at MailPlus. We'll be back with another topic on Medical Minefield next week. So we'll see you then.